So. Thanks, Chair. Wow. Uh, good evening. How are you? Good. That was kind of lame, you guys. How are you? Good? Good. Uh, it's been about a year, I think, since, I've, uh, since we've been here. Um, we wish we could get back more frequently, but uh, we do currently reside in Johnson City, Tennessee, and uh, it's a little bit of a trek to get here on a frequent basis, but my wife's family all still lives here, and so we have lots of good reasons to come, not just to only visit with you, which is plenty enough reason for us, but uh, we do get a chance to visit with her family and very excited to have just recently celebrated uh, with our family the adoption of our niece uh, on Friday. We got to be at the courthouse for that, so there's a lot of really cool things uh, for us being here. Um, but I am excited to share with you an update on what we've been up to for the past year and then just remind you a little bit about the work that we do. Um, like John's introduced to us, we work with an organization called Nexus International. And uh, the, the heartbeat of Nexus is to start and sustain movements of disciple-making in the local church that's specifically oriented towards getting the gospel to the next generation. And I want to just share, I may have shared this with you before, but uh, why that needs to be a part of our mission's world. Right now, there's about 2 billion young people, so that's under the age of 24, on planet Earth right now. That's a lot, by the way, Two with a B billion. Uh, just, if you want to think about how big that number is, it would take you almost 60 years to start counting from now until you reach that number. If you never took a break, never went to the bathroom, never took a breath, that's a lot. About 98% of those young people do not currently have a relationship with Jesus. That's... 1.8 billion people, making young people the single largest unreached demographic on earth. Wow. That's a pretty staggering thing. Robert Coleman wrote a really amazing book called The Master Plan of Evangelism. Has anybody heard of this book? In that book, he said uh, that the greatest test of any work of evangelism is not what's seen in the moment, uh, but that that work continues to the next generation. I want you to think about the number that I just gave you <laughs> and what Robert Coleman said. Whether you, I, I, We really believe that what he said is true. So that means at best, what we're currently doing to pass what we know and believe, our apprenticeship to Jesus, our allegiance to Jesus onto the next generation has been ineffective. And at worst, it's non-existent. And this is what we've been finding, actually. And this is what Nexus is sort of built to do. As we found that most churches around the world, most church communities and ministries around the world do not have a real philosophy of ministry that's oriented towards the next generation. Some is, is a bit of an afterthought at all. Most uh, ministry leaders are lonely. They're exhausted. They're burned out. Uh, they're really isolated in their communities. They have uh, little to no resources and little to no support. I want you to, guys to see this middle photo. I don't know if you can see this. Some, if your eyes are good, you might be able to notice that many of those faces are blurred out. 
And the reason why those faces are blurred out is because those leaders work in and live in and are a part of communities where it is not safe to be a Christian. Meaning that the, actually the majority of that 98% of young people, uh, of that 2 billion that don't know Jesus, they live in regions like that where they might not even have someone culturally near to them that can share the gospel with them. And so what we need to be able to do is come alongside leaders that are in their community or near their community and be able to give them the support, the resources, the friendship, and the encouragement and the philosophy of ministry to make disciples in their own community. And that's exactly what we've been up to. And so I get a chance to work in a cross-cultural missions environment from, uh, from my home in Tennessee. That doesn't mean that I just stay there. Uh, we like to do long-term relational uh, training and equipping of a handful of leaders in very strategic places over a long period of time. And we like to make annual visits to each one of them to do training and resourcing. And it's really hard to be friends with someone and encourage them uh, from, some far, from so far away. So we really like the physical connection. And so uh, this year alone, I've been able to, uh, we did an Asia gathering. That's where that middle photo was taken uh, in Thailand. I'm on our Asia region. And so I get a chance to, to be around these guys a lot. We were able to get them all together in February of this last year in Thailand. Thailand's a really great place uh, for them to get to. And in that photo, we have leaders from Bhutan, Nepal, China, uh, Taiwan, the Philippines, uh, Kazakhstan, uh, Uzbekistan, um, India. And so this is a really great, uh, Mauritius, we have a really great opportunity to get these guys around each other. That's a really important thing. Uh, like I said before, they're all very isolated. So to be around other brothers and sisters in Christ who are, have very similar environments is a really powerful thing. And to get to have them encourage each other and uh, give each other resources is really great. And we'll be going, doing that again in February. Uh, the, the gentleman uh, here with his two kids in the bottom right-hand side, his name's Ashley Jury, and uh, he's one of my closest guys, uh, and he is a house church pastor and ministry leader on the island nation of Mauritius, which is down near Madagascar. Uh, there's no real quick way to get there. It's a really long ways away, and there's only about 1.2 million people that live there, but the vast majority of them are Hindus. Uh, even though it's an African country, it still kind of falls in our Asia region because of its uh, makeup like that because it's Hindu country and he comes from a Hindu family has an amazing testimony how he came to know the Lord but we've been walking with him for two and a half years now and I talk to him every week um, and he's really excited uh, that we get to do another training with him in April and I got to go last year uh, with him but he'll also be at our Asia region and the last thing I want to share you on the on the left hand side you'll see these two photos with the red chairs and this guy down in the bottom uh, his name's Sunit and I just want to share a quick story about Sunit. He's our um, ambassador in India. He's uh, from central India. And I just got back from uh, visiting with him. He's doing a really, really excellent job of making disciples. He's got about 12 young guys that he's been investing in that are all uh, pastors and church leaders across, uh, across India. Uh, many of those guys we pulled together for a, a weekend training and retreat uh, just earlier this month. And uh, many of them were on a train ride for eight to ten hours to come. We had to raise some money so that we could make sure that they had 
food for their families and stuff while they were gone because many of them have to work day labor for their food and lodging. Uh, so they were able to put all that on hold so that they could come and gather together, and we did a little training with them. So that's all them in the red chairs. They're, they're an absolute blast to be around. Uh, but something just a little bit of reality for them is that in the part of India that they, they live and serve in is a really hostile environment. Uh, many of them are in constant fear for their lives due to Hindu uh, extremists who, um, who hurt them often. Uh, Sunit, uh, he has lost probably five pastor friends in the past two years due to these extremists who have either murdered them or beat them up or they've been imprisoned in some way. Uh, sharing the gospel comes with a huge price in their culture. Um, in his little house church, uh, they are in a room with no windows, and there's a screen on the wall with all of the camera angles for all around their house so they can see if anyone's coming. And I just want you to know what that experience is like of being there with guys like that and being able to encourage them and shape them and help be a part of the work that they're doing is incredible. And that's because of the support of folks like you who put us in the room with them and what's really neat is that they're not looking at that screen in worry and fear, but in boldness and faith, proclaiming their love and joy and worship to Jesus. This whole group on the floor, not an eye on the screen. That's incredible to me. And that these guys would come at great risk to their families, at great risk to their livelihood, uh, just for three days worth of training so that they can get better to be better equipped to make disciples in their community. And so we did a little exercise with them, and we asked what were some of the big barriers for young people hearing the gospel. And besides some of the obvious things, I was just really taken back by how they were so committed to, despite the safety reasons for them sharing the gospel, they still wanted to find a way. And uh, he, he had, uh, John had mentioned that we're a part of something called w a Wilderness Ministries as well. We have a, a part of our organization that helps equip leaders with the tools of outdoors. And this is one of the reasons that they were interested in, because they think that taking kids camping, it might be a safer place to share the gospel with them because it's out of the prying eyes of their neighbors and communities. And so they're just trying to think so creatively <laughs> about how do we share the gospel with young people. And that's so faith-encouraging to me because uh, even as someone who's committed their life to missions work, I still find it hard and scary sometimes to share the gospel. But these guys are doing it with just an enormous amount of zeal and faith and hope and bravery. And I just think that ought to be encouraging to you guys as well. Um, and I'd love for you to pray for them and be praying for them. Uh, we've got a lot of great things coming up. We've got stuff in Taiwan going on. We've got a big training, two-week training that we're going to be doing in Finland next year. We've got all lots of things going on. And uh, I just want to encourage you to continue to, you guys are doing such a great job supporting us and praying for us and staying uh, involved with us. And we literally cannot do any of this without that. And so it's important for us just to come uh, and just say that to you and say thank you for that. Um, and if you want to continue to know more or want to ask questions, we will be able to stay for dinner tonight. So I'd love to just 
be here, and my wife and kid is somewhere, probably running around a three-year-old. It's hard to keep still, as you guys know. Um, but we'll be here and love to talk to you more. But if you'd like to know, like, how do you get more involved with what we're doing, we'd love to invite you to pray. Uh, if you're interested in supporting what we do, uh, there's ways that you can do that. We have prayer cards out front, I saw, and we have extras. If you'd like to take one, it has information on how to support our work. And we'd also just love to continue to inspire you to make disciples uh, in your own community, to be a disciple of Jesus who makes disciples here in Santa Rosa. Um, and that would be a way that you can support our work, too, by continuing to further that mission. Uh, here's what I'd like for you to pray uh, for our leaders. Um, I'll give this mic up. I've probably overdone my time already. But John 17, in verse uh, 15, it says, I am not asking you to take them out of the world, but that you would keep them safe from the evil one. And they do not belong to the world just as I do not belong to the world. I set them apart in your truth, and your word is truth, just as you sent me into the world, I sent them into the world. And I set myself apart on their behalf so that they may too be truly set apart. I am not praying only on their behalf, but also for those who believe in me through their testimony. So this world's hard for them, and I'd like for you to pray for their safety and pray for those that come to know uh, Jesus through their testimony. So thanks. Let's pray real quick. You guys, let's join me. Let's pray, um, both for Andrew and the work that they're doing, but um, for these guys too. God, we thank you for that, God, that high priestly prayer of Jesus, God, that that you would do what only you can do, God, that not that you would take them out of the world, but that you would do your work through them, God, that you would make yourself known through them, God. We ask, God, that you would um, just fan into flame the gifts and the callings that are on each of these uh, people, God, as they seek to make disciples of Jesus, God, and that, that would, I thank you for how encouraging that is for us, God, in, uh, in a growing uh, culture that, that is maybe not as receptive, God, that we just thank you for the encouragement from our brothers and sisters abroad, and God, we ask that you would continue a good work. Thank you for Andrew and his heart, God. And we ask that you'd bless them in all that they do, that you would multiply their efforts, that you would richly bless them and strengthen and encourage them for the work at hand. Uh, we just thank you for all that in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah. All right. We're going to go ahead and get started. We've got a lot going on tonight. And so we're going to, yeah, just cut, just cut the music. Just do it. Um, so let me pray real quick. We're going to read, and then we will be off to the races. Father, thank you for this evening. Thank you for a time just to concentrate on your word. Thank you so much for the report from the Underwoods. Lord, I pray that we would, Lord, be able to engage with them. Lord, that we would partner in the gospel. Lord, I pray that uh, you'd continue to bless them. Lord, protect them. Lord, I pray that your gospel would continue to go forth even in places where there's darkness. Lord, we anticipate a great light in these places. Lord, as we look into your word, I pray you would make us, Lord, ready to receive your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would please stand for the reading of God's word. Chapter 18. In Acts tonight. Not the whole chapter tonight. We'll make some progress, though. 
After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade the Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus, or that the Christ was Jesus. And when uh, they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. For now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named uh, Tidius Justice, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in the city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. This is God's word. You may be seated. Tonight we carry on in Acts. We're already in Acts 18. I say already after we've been, what, a year and a half now? Yeah, something like that. Um, but here we are. We find ourselves in chapter 18. And I believe next week we actually pause. And we'll pause for the next five weeks. So, yeah, not much progress after that until next year. So that's all right. That's all right. We made it to Corinth. So tonight we're going to be looking at this passage in, in chapter 18. Paul makes it all the way to Corinth. Last, uh, last time we were in chapter 17, we had the story of Paul in Athens. Um, these are pretty pivotal cities. You have Athens, you have Corinth, and in fact, I'm sure for us, we actually know these cities, not just from scripture, but just from, from history, from, from some other things. They, they, we will uh, be in familiar territory here, but Starting in verse 1 here, it says, After Paul left Athens, he went to Corinth, which, which makes some sense, because Corinth was a, a pretty influential, a massive city as far as its impact in that region of the world. Um, Corinth, much like Athens, were, they were centers of culture, centers of commerce. These were places that even if you weren't trying to, you would probably end up crossing through trying to get somewhere else. These uh, especially Corinth was at the crossroads of that area of the world. Corinth, um, Corinth and where it's situated, I don't have a map. You have maps in your Bible, though. You could check it out if you want to. Corinth finds itself right in this isthmus, which is one of my favorite words, and I don't get to use it that often. So isthmus, it's, it's right in this place where if you wanted to go north or south, you would probably end up in Corinth, and cross over that land barrier there. 
if you were just passing through east to west, you would probably end up stopping in Corinth anyway. So it really was at the crossroads of the world in that area there with the, uh, uh, with the sea, the strait there. That was a very popular place to have to pass on through, trying to get from the northern part of Greece to the southern part of Greece. And so that it definitely had its, its position there. It was not unheard of that Paul would, would stop there. Now, it says here that Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. In Athens, Athens was sort of interesting. Athens, Paul was there. He wasn't with his normal companions doing the things that he would normally do necessarily. He's, he was kind of rolling by himself. And he got to go to some pretty famous places. He got to speak in some places that I don't know if he even really expected to speak at. There at the uh, Areopagus there. But he got to have some very uh, philosophical and theological conversations. What's interesting is in Athens, you don't have the same type of reception that you had in some of the other places. People may have been interested, but it doesn't say that a church was necessarily established or put together there. There are people who came to listen to Paul and, and came to believe, but it wasn't quite the same. So Paul might be rolling through here to Corinth, maybe a little bit of a, a valley for him. It's a, maybe a, a more depressing type of time for Paul. We don't, obviously, we, we don't hear about a lot of those things about what Paul's thinking or feeling through that. But, but just imagine, you know, because you've, we're going through chapter 16 and 17, we're seeing Paul travel for a long time with his companions, not really knowing where to go, ends up going to Macedonia after being called there. And yes, there's some high points, there's some definite W's, but there's some different situations that really do feel like L's, if you really think about it. Yes, there were groups established, like churches established, like in Philippi. But that came with plenty of beatings and time in prison. And I think I made the joke last time is when Paul rolls into town, he, first he finds the synagogue and then he goes to find where the jail is because he knows he's going to spend some time in both those places. But um, he rolls into Corinth probably at that low point. He still has not met back up with his companions. Um, we Obviously, we just read through that he does eventually meet up with Silas and Timothy. But he rolls into town probably by himself. Now, it's not like Paul's a baby. He can travel by himself. He can go different places. He probably maybe enjoyed part of it. But just showing up in a city, probably with some type of companions with him, but it, they weren't his ministry companions necessarily, rolls into this big city after having left Athens, and you can just imagine, wow. <laughs> it's probably maybe a little intimidating, but definitely a low point possibly for Paul because when he shows up here as well, there are a couple of details that I think lead us to, see, this was kind of a different situation. Look at verse 2. He found a Jew named Aquila. Now, where did he find, where would he find a Jew? Well, like I said, he probably showed up at the synagogue and probably found him there. Quite possibly, or we're not really told that, but Paul has a, a way of finding the Jews in an area. So he meets up with Aquila, and Aquila and his wife Priscilla, they also were displaced people. And so there's probably a level of camaraderie that he found there uh, with them. 
And they were also tent makers. And the reason I point all this out, Paul rolling into town maybe at a low point. The Lord seems to always bring some people that are encouragement. Right? So you have Priscilla, you have Aquila, who are there that he meets that are um, in the same industry, if you want to say. They're all tent makers, and he ends up staying with them. That had to have been this surprising bit of encouragement that Paul got. And that was the Lord that set that up, obviously. It's not like there were letters sent beforehand anywhere. There's no Airbnb. There's no Facebook groups to try to find someone to stay with when you do it somewhere else. So this is the Lord that set this up, obviously. But he has to work with them. So at the same time, we can gather that Paul probably has run out of money. He doesn't have any more support. He doesn't have the people normally he would be traveling with. He doesn't have that, so he gets to work. He gets to work with Priscilla and Aquila, and it says that they, or that he went to the synagogue, and he would reason with them on the Sabbath, and he, would, he was talking to the Jews and talking to Greeks. This right here, I think, gathering just those bits of information, is probably the closest that Paul got on this journey, maybe through his other journeys as well, to what we would probably regard as the normal Christian life. He's in this town. He's working. On the weekends, on the Sabbath, he's going to synagogue. He's meeting with people. He's talking with people. And he is living what I would probably call the normal Christian life. He's not given a big platform. He's not out there having these massive crusades. At least it doesn't seem that way. He is just living life. He is living the life as someone who follows after Jesus, being put in a place where he is just living. His right. And again, it doesn't mean that he's, that it's terrible. He's there with Aquila and Priscilla. He's, he's talking with people, still reasoning. He's still ministering, but I think Paul knew what it meant. To go to work, do your work, have to make money, and then in those times that you'd find to do what God's called you to do. Right? Sort of like we all do. Paul lived that. And I don't think we normally think of the Apostle Paul as living a normal life. <laughs> he kind of did. Kind of did, at least for this time here. We don't know exactly how long, but he was living that way. It said, verse 5, when Silas and Timothy arrived in Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word. But kind of the idea there is once they showed up, then, it's, then he more so got even more into ministry. So it seems as though when, when his companions finally do show up from Macedonia, they kind of kick into gear coming alongside, and he gets to spend a lot more time focusing on the gospel. So if you look here at verse 5, it says, When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. So that term Christ there, it's just the Greek word for Messiah. So he is reasoning with the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, it doesn't 
necessarily say here he was at the same synagogue every time. Was he traveling around? Corinth was a big place. We don't know any of those details. We know that Paul sort of kicks into, into gear there like he normally would. He's able to spend more time. Is he spending time with people in the synagogue throughout the week? Quite possibly. Corinth, Corinth was an interesting place. So he's there in the synagogue, but Corinth, just as a city, was, it had a reputation. I think even as we read through Corinthians, um, we'll, we'll do this. Toss out some words that you connect with the Corinthians just from the letters that we have. We don't even have to go too deeply into things, but what are some of the things, just based on the things that Paul was trying to help them with, help them to understand, what are some things that we might say, or some adjectives we might use for the church at Corinth? I don't know, I'm testing you. Diverse. Diverse. Yeah, Corinth was definitely a diverse place, which goes with being at the crossroads of that area, right? What else? Decadent. That's a great word to use. It's a great word to use because it doesn't get too graphic, but at the same time, we get it, right? Uh, Corinth was a pretty decadent place. We don't have a lot of information around the synagogue and kind of the relationship with the Jews with the rest of the city. We'll find some more of that out here right here. Uh, as far as how they're uh, interacting with some of the officials. We don't know in general as far as how were the Jews accepted. We don't have a ton of that type of information. But we know a bit about Corinth, and we would know that there are lots of principles, according to an Old Testament-centered view of the world, that would seem very at odds with the city of Corinth. So Corinth, just to kind of give a little, little bit of history, established in like 800, 700 B.C. Uh, around 550 B.C., they finally gets to a place where they kind of join with Sparta. That's when they kind of are all kind of collecting up into their, you know, these individual city-states are kind of coming together. But they link up with Sparta. Fun fact, that Spartan sort of look of the helmet, it's actually a Corinthian helmet. There you go. You can put, put that aside. Somewhere, I don't know what you do with that information, but that was actually their invention. Um, but all that to say, they were linked up. They were linked up with some of these other groups in, uh, in sort of these alliances that they would have. It didn't help them much, though, when the Romans rolled through. They sort of destroyed everything, destroyed the entire city. But by the time you get to about 45 AD, they are sort of rebuilt by the Romans, and so you, you definitely see that they've gone through it as far as all that's concerned. But one of the big aspects of Corinthian type of living had to do with their worship. Um, they, had, uh, they were a center for Aphrodite worship. So Aphrodite, who, Aphrodite is the goddess of what? Love? Love is a very gentle way of putting it, but yes, love, uh, goddess of fertility, goddess of, also of warfare, warriors, also of uh, seafaring, and so Corinth seemed like the right place for all those different things. 
Uh, but Corinth does have a reputation. The reputation that Corinth has is the same reputation you would think for a place that is very cosmopolitan, very decadent, that worships Aphrodite. If you were not in Corinth and someone could describe you as a Corinthian, it would probably be taken as someone who was rather decadent and, yes, we'll leave it at that. But that was the reputation of Corinth, even around the world, that, that world, uh, the Mediterranean world, I should say, was that Corinth was like that. And so when we get to these different forms of worship, it, it must have felt very weird. I'll just put it like that. It must have been very weird to be a Jew in Corinth with how we see Galilee and Judea and those areas. We don't see a whole lot of that. It probably was actually a lot like how Israel was during time of the judges, during some of these other times in history where they were more on the decadent side, more into uh, worshiping uh, the Asherah, the, uh, the Baals, the, these type of things. The form of worship that you had there in Corinth had a lot of connection with like um, temple prostitution and those types of things. So it, it was not a place that was necessarily, as we would say it, geared towards the gospel. But when Paul finds himself there, he is spending his time speaking in the synagogues, and it says here, he's not just with the Jews, but also with the Greeks in verse 4. But there arose some opposition, and it had to do, of course, with the person of Jesus. Which is actually a pretty good thing. When you get to a point where people oppose you because you speak the truth about who Jesus is and they can't handle that, you're in the right spot. They didn't dislike Paul because he was a prude. They didn't dislike Paul because he was, um, you know, he didn't like their culture. They, they, the Jews in the synagogue disliked Paul because he said that Jesus was the Christ, that Jesus was the Messiah. To the point where they, they oppose him to the point where Paul basically fulfills one of the things that Jesus told his disciples to do. It says he shakes out his garments. It says blood on your blood will be on your head. I've I've informed you. I'm out of here. I'm going to the Gentiles. So we don't know exactly what the opposition was, but it was to the point where Paul had enough and he left. He didn't go to a very far. He just went next door. Didn't have to travel very far. What's interesting here is you have these, these two that are mentioned here. Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. So actually quite a bit like Cornelius, who worshipped Yahweh, but wasn't necessarily a, a total proselyte. He hadn't completely, uh, sort of, he, doesn't, he didn't live like, like a Jew in the same type of way. But his house was next door, so that's where he went. And then you have Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, or some translations will put the president of the synagogue. He was sort of in charge there. Who also believed, and I kind of wanted to highlight this. It says here, he believed in the Lord together with his entire household, which is kind of a weird way to put that. You would think that the ruler of the synagogue would already know the Lord. But what's interesting here is the way that Luke writes this 
Crispus was the ruler of the synagogue, so clearly, clearly knew who Yahweh was and followed after Yahweh in that way. That was sort of where he was. But it says here that he believed in the Lord with his household. That's a weird way to state that. What that kind of sounds like is he heard the gospel and he and his household followed after Jesus because it says here he believed in the Lord together with his whole, with his whole household. Many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. And I can just, oh, we'll take a side quest here real quick. President of the synagogue clearly knows Old Testament doctrine, right? Probably argued it. Luke here in a subtle way basically says, that's not enough. You need to know the Lord. Crispus knew the Lord. That's why Paul was associated with him. That's why he was with these ones. And it's interesting that it was the leader of the synagogue who started following after the Lord. <clears throat> There's no secondary salvation. There's no close enough. The reason Paul was persecuted was he, he would say, you know the doctrines of Yahweh and this is good, but Yahweh has sent his Messiah and that's who you must worship. He is God. And if they failed to do so, they were not regarded as following after the Lord. It's really important for us to see this because the reason this is what is going to be a problem for Paul, quote-unquote a problem for Paul in this next portion of the passage that we look at here. A couple of things I'd like to look at. Turn with me, if you would, Matthew 10, 14. Matthew 10, 14. There's a lot we could do. We're not in Matthew. So we're not going to spend a ton of time here. This is, uh, we're going to be right in the middle of the passage where Jesus sends out his disciples to minister. And Jesus tells them this thing. This is what Paul was living out. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that town, that house or town. Verse 15, truly I say to you, it will be more bearable in the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. I think Paul was fulfilling that. He received opposition. He shook the dust out, it says, out of his garments. I think he also adds probably something that we heard from uh, of course, sort of the idea with Pontius Pilate where he says he washes his hands and the population of people, the crowds outside, basically say, no, put the blood on our heads. That's fine. Kill Jesus. I think Paul is pulling all these ideas and concepts together. These were the people that should have heard 
the good news that the Messiah had come, considered it and turned. And, and we do see that with a few, but not with many. They didn't all just turn. Paul has this pattern. We talked about it a lot. He goes and he talks to synagogue, right? He, he speaks there. He tries to reason. Those are the people who probably, at least should, know and understand principles of the gospel and should turn. And when they, if they do or they don't, then Paul moves on to the Gentiles. And he goes and shares with them. When Paul does this in Corinth, he goes and stays with this Crispus and, um, sorry, Titius Justus and, and with Crispus. At that point, maybe Paul was going to treat this like Athens. Maybe Paul was going to treat this like Thessalonica. All right, we'll, we'll do some preaching here, but then we're going to be out. We're going to go somewhere else. We don't even know exactly where he was going to go, but and the reason I say that is because of what the Lord says to him after this. Verse 9 says, The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid. Go on speaking. And do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many people in this city who are mine. Or many in the city who are my people. This may have been in response to how Paul was feeling. Like he was ready to, okay, we'll, we'll do a little bit of cleanup preaching, then we're going to be out. He says, no, you need to stick around. Keep speaking, keep speaking the word. Going back to Matthew real quick. During this, this part of, of Matthew, Jesus is, I think, preparing his disciples, who would be the apostles, to deal with this kind of opposition. He was sending them out. They were going to go and, and teach and preach and heal and minister to people. And so he's giving them these instructions. Look at chapter 11 if you're following back to Matthew. Verse 1, when Jesus had finished instructing the 12 disciples, he went on uh, from there to teach and preach in their cities. At this point, he hears that John is in prison. And what he tells them, look at verse 13. It says, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah that is to come. Verse 15. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus had this interaction with people. He would speak the truth. And I'll just ask you, did most people listen to Jesus? Did most people follow Jesus? Nah. In fact, he had that big old crowd of 5,000. It's like Jesus picked the things he knew would make people decide one way or the other, and he would preach those things so he feeds 5,000 people. He starts to preach about, oh, I don't know, drinking blood and eating flesh. Like the most agitating way to talk about the gospel. And everyone leaves. It's just the 12 left. And I'm sure they're like, Jesus, why? 
are you doing this? Why do you keep doing that? <laughs> you could be a bit more persuasive. You could at least drop some of those tough things later. Why, why are you doing this? This verse here, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. A couple chapters later, we get a story. Chapter 13 of Matthew. Get the story of the sower. I'm sure most of us who have read through the Gospels or been in the church for a while, we, we probably know this parable. Jesus talks about a sower, someone who's sowing seeds, right, to, for them to, to grow. He's kind of a, a, a very lackadaisical farmer, as we would probably put it. He's just throwing seed out there. But he talks about several different types of ground. So the seeds go flying through the air and they land either in the rocky soil, right, or they land on the, the path. Or they land in some place where they're among the weeds, or they land in good ground, right? And Jesus says there, there's these four different types of soil. People don't understand, so later Jesus elaborates and says, this is sowing of the word of God. It either lands in good ground or ground where it's stolen away by Satan, it's choked out by the cares of the world, or just lands in a place where the, it's just scorched out, it's just ruined, right? Taken away, taken away by the birds. It's not really brought up about the sower. The sower's responsibility is to throw out the seeds. They don't really say, well, you know, sower, if you would just go and find the good ground, just throw it there. Well, it would take care of a lot of the problems. It's never brought up. It's never discussed. It's not the sower's issue. The issue is the ground, the ground in which the seeds fall. Jesus says to them, he who have ears to hear, let him hear. If you look at the, uh, going back to Acts, Jesus tells Paul, hey, they're not going to attack you, okay? But there are many in this city who are mine, so you need to stay. And so he does. What does he do? I am sure it is much like that sower. Because God didn't tell him whose were his. His responsibility is to share. His responsibility is to teach. His responsibility is to distribute the word. It is not Paul's responsibility to make sure that it takes root. That is not his responsibility. He's there for a year and six months, 18 months. And I think we can see what Paul was doing by what takes place after this. If you look at verse 12, it says, when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made 
a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. Now, based on what God had told him, this is probably more of a legal attack than anything else, right? Because the Lord said, they're not going to attack you physically. But they brought him before this proconsul. This man is persuading people, I'm in verse 13, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, so Paul doesn't even say a word. It says, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint, but since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourself. I refuse to judge in these things. It says, then he drove them from the tribunal. It says, and they, they seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Can't be bothered. So here's the situation. Paul is brought before Gallio. They bring a accusation. Now this accusation, that's not a, a new one, right? Hey, he's, he's causing trouble. He's telling us these different types of things. Before Paul can even speak, Gallio goes, what are you guys doing? I don't decide these things. Get out of here. Paul doesn't even have to speak. I know that it's between the lines, but I can't help but feel as though in a year and a half, Paul preaching and teaching and being there in that city, I am quite confident Paul had a reputation by the time he reaches Gallio. He's not a rabble-rouser. He's not trying to overthrow anyone. He's not trying to cause trouble for that community. We all know that's not what Paul's there to do. And I know it's between the lines, but I can't help but feel as though Gallio was able to speak confidently concerning Paul because Paul had established a reputation about himself. He had been faithful to do what he was supposed to do. And I say all these things because it's not Paul's responsibility to make people believe. It is Paul's responsibility to speak and to preach and the Lord will take care of the rest. Remember in the beginning here of this story, Paul most likely was living a normal Christian life. He was doing probably what we would have been doing, just working, just ministering to people when you can, going to the synagogue. He was, he was doing these things that he was supposed to do. This is the normal Christian life. And when Paul would speak, the church there would grow. We know that a church is established there because Paul sends these letters later. Here's the other side of this too. Was it a perfect church? Not based on the letters. The normal Christian life is not one of perfection. It's one of endurance. It's of overcoming. Overcoming struggle. 
it's quite literally living in light of a battle. Knowing and understanding what's at stake. And like Paul, fulfilling the words of Jesus, you are just there to speak. To do the things that God has called you to do. Paul's results were not perfect. Was there a perfect church established in Corinth? Do you think that's because Paul left something out? Did he not do what he was supposed to do? That wasn't Paul's responsibility was to produce perfection. Paul's responsibility was to be faithful. We know that he was faithful because he got in trouble. (laughs) The Jews came after him, most likely because he was effective. But it doesn't mean that it was perfect. I would, I would say for us to, to look at this, there are some times where we look at what we can do and it's not perfect. So sometimes we're, we are tempted to not. To not do it. Maybe we don't share the gospel because we don't know what the result might be. There's someone who starts to talk about things of God or truth or fill in the blank and we say, well, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't have that much time. I don't know if I should doing that and maybe we miss an opportunity the Lord brings us to opportunity our responsibility is to sow we sow we just we throw the seed we we throw the word of God and then as we're throwing the Lord deploys the Lord moves us as we're doing that as we're doing what God has called us to do as we're speaking truthfully in the opportunities that we're given whether it's in Athens, in the Areopagus, or if it's next door to the synagogue in someone's house. Faithful to present the gospel wherever we are. Paul, seemingly, speaks in someone's backyard, and then also we find out he speaks to proconsuls, to Caesar. What's the difference? Nothing. Paul is just doing what he's supposed to do. Perfect result? No. And we'll get into that later after Advent in January when we talk more about the letters to the Corinthians. Not perfect, right? But faithful. The normal Christian life is us repeating the message and the Lord placing us where we are supposed to be. I am excited about the testimonies that we're starting to hear more of, right? We're going to do some more later on. I hope I hear more stories of more people at Refuge getting into trouble. Getting into trouble because we are bringing the gospel where the enemy doesn't want it. And we see how the Lord's faithful to get us out of that trouble in a result that will be pleasing, glorifying, and honoring to him. That's the normal Christian life. Imperfectly presenting the gospel, not knowing what the results will be, and probably getting into trouble at the same time. Gospel trouble. Not other trouble. Gospel trouble. Gospel trouble will bring us enough trouble. Let's just do that. Father, we thank you for the example of Paul. Thank you, Lord, that he would endure loneliness, He would endure, Lord, being in a 
hostile type of culture. We thank you that Paul, as a minister of the gospel, was liberal with his speaking. He threw the seed everywhere, everywhere he was. Side of the river with just a couple women there, standing in front of massive crowds, to a packed room, so packed that some kid falls out the window. I mean, Paul will take the gospel everywhere. Lord, I pray that we would be faithful to speak your word wherever you take us. Whether it we're having a good day, whether we think it's where we're supposed to be, whether we, Lord, are prepared for it or not, God, I pray that we would take up, Lord, the cross and we would follow you, that we would deny ourselves, that we would take the gospel, this good news. Why is it good news? Because for everyone else who doesn't know it, it is a way out. Way out of death, way out of wrath, separation from you. Lord, I pray that we would not be stingy with the gospel. We would instead be Lord, very liberal with our throwing of the seeds. Lord, I pray that you do this to plant seeds, to water seeds. Lord, we pray also that you would give increase. Lord, I pray that your people here at Refuge, Lord, would be used to find your people out in Santa Rosa and Sonoma County. Lord, I pray to use us in massive way. Lord, make us faithful. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.